Tonight I'd like to speak about the journey into the mind. <clears throat> and um, to use the metaphor, as I sometimes do, of this room being the mind. And I'll use other props as well. When I In Seattle, when I show up with a light like this, they know it's going to be one of the flashlight series of talks. <laughs> so, journey into the mind. <clears throat> I'm... Um, I, I become very touched by many of the interviews throughout the day, uh, partially because of the vulnerability that many of you show, uh, partially because of the honesty and sincerity that uh, many of you also demonstrate. And I think what in particular I enjoy is the tenderness uh, that seems to uh, culti- be cultivated through a retreat like this, and the sensitivity of heart, which many of you express in the interview situation. For when we go into this, into this journey of the mind, it's a journey which really requires that kind of vulnerability and sensitivity. Jack's talk last night affected, I think, many of us in terms of those stories and getting us in tune with the ways of the heart. And I certainly believe that there is only one way to enter the room of this mind. It's with that self-accepting, allowing attitude that we try to engender here through our instructions and through our dialogues. It's also interesting to note that most people in this world will never make this journey. As we approach the new millennium, the small fraction of us who are willing to come into this room of the mind and explore it are indeed a precious few. Because I believe that the strategies that we employ in our life, for the most part, keep us from entering this room, from coming in, from making the entrance. Many of us would rather blame than own responsibility. We would rather point fingers outward. We would rather accuse and allow ourselves to remain unchanged. Because if I can pin it on you, you make me angry. I can then not have to own the anger is as my own. I don't have to take responsibility for it. And it's your responsibility to change your behavior so I won't be angry. Now, um, we may say, well, you know, I've been doing this now for a while, and I'm, I'm more steady of heart than that. I really do own my anger. Well, let me tell you uh, what my wife and I are doing. 
just is a humbling experience for you. We have a, a particular um, object, it happens to be a jade heart, that we pass back and forth to each other every other day. I get it one day and she gets it the next. And the holder of that heart for that day has to hold their reactivity and the other, their partner's reactivity. So not to get caught up in the swirl of the uh, blame. And then the person who doesn't hold the heart has no rules at all. They can re <laughs> relate however they do. And so we pass this heart back and forth. The object is, is to get 30 straight days in which the holder was able to maintain that posture of holding the reactivity of his or her own reactions plus this, his or her partners. And if you don't own up, if, you, if the holder reacts and doesn't own up to my reactivity, we have to go back to day one. <laughs> so we have been doing this about two months and we're on about day three. <laughs> it is extraordinarily hard because, I, I mean, I'm not, um, certainly uh, am as much a part of the loss of those days as my partner. And <laughs> after, after 25 years of meditation, you would think otherwise, but you get, in caught, you get caught in that cycle and there's so much justification, self-righteousness for why it is I'm reacting. But I, I don't have to apologize. It's true. <laughs> this is what goes on in a much more subtle basis almost continuously with us. Blame is a very strong tendency of mine to look out, to deflect the gaze of looking at our anger and look for the cause, to dwell upon the content of why it is that I am justified in feeling the way I'm feeling instead of owning the experience as my own. Doesn't mean that you don't address the communication patterns and the situation. But the emotion, for God's sake, is our own. It doesn't belong to anyone else. To take responsibility only means that we own the emotion as our own. And so entering the room of the mind, we must first be able to admit to our blames, admit to our accusations, Admit to our finger pointing. And then, of course, we have another whole array, array of defense mechanisms, and I won't dwell on more of them than just the other major obstacle that many of us find, and that's denial, that there's any problem at all, that there's any reason to go into this room for one thing, and once I'm there, I mean, I don't have to admit to anything here. Isn't it all 
nice and neat in here. And the first thing that we enter, first thing that we understand when we enter is how chaotic it really is. So let us enter together this room of the mind. Now we have to travel very lightly. And the spirit of renunciation is the spirit of that light backpack we take, if at all, if we take anything at all. Because really the object is to move almost with, uh, in nakedness into this room. And we have strategies that we have employed in our lifetime that have worked very successfully to be able to build our lives in a certain way that makes worldly sense in terms of our status and prestige, in terms of our occupation and schooling. We've been able to employ these strategies rather successfully to achieve a degree and to obtain a certain monetary rewards, etc. And so we're filled with certain strategies about how we're going to enter this room as well. And it worked for me to get through law school, for God's sake. It should work for me to get through meditation, at least 10 days of it. And we have an enormous amount of opinions and conclusions and attitudes and images that we also hold about ourselves. That I'm this way as opposed to that. That my strengths are these and my weaknesses are those. That if I apply myself, I can access greater strength in these areas. And so we enter with an enormous amount of baggage into this room. Although we think we're coming pretty slim down, there's a lot of weight that we're carrying. And this room demands innocence, which is why after a few days of the humility of seeing what the mind really contains as compared to what you thought it was containing, begin to see in your eyes that fragility of spirit, that humility, that vulnerability. My God, what is this thing about? It's an enormous journey and has many metaphors and many different traditions. But the one object, the one thing that we carry, actually there are two things that we carry into this room. One is our attention, is our awareness. And it's very light, figuratively and literally. It just moves to display and to show and to demonstrate and to see, just to highlight what's in this room. Because without the light, the whole thing appears internally as a cavern, as a cave, in which I have opinions about what's in there, but no real substance, no real fact. A lot of thoughts. But thoughts, when we use them to interpret what's in the room, don't really come 
to the substance of what's there. They coat the thing themselves with how we would like it to be or what we're afraid is there, but not what's really in there. And so in this practice, we don't encourage dwelling upon our thinking. We don't encourage prolonging or encouraging our thoughts about what is going on or the content of what we see because they don't really come to the substantial quality of what's in this room. They don't embrace it. They don't, we can't touch it. We don't get a feeling experientially through our thoughts. And our thoughts are also an enormous, have the enormous ability to keep us outside of the room, detract us, to show us another reality, an imaginary reality, where we'll send our mind off to Hawaii and enjoy the vacation we had last summer all over again. Rather than to participate in the experience of being here with whatever is. The other thing which is essential in walking into this space is self-honesty. Again, the willingness to own our experience and the willingness to, and the courage to feel that there's some basis in which the facts that are going to be presented will ultimately be supportive of my growth. We have to have some confidence in walking into this room that what we see will somehow allow us more freedom, will somehow give us some sense that in seeing what's, this, this, what's on display here, we can come to greater degree of support and growth in ourselves. So facts are friendly, and we have to trust that. That is often how we step into the room out of faith. It mu- it must, something must, good must come out of here. But we go into the room with our ideas about what we want from the room what we want from our goals in meditation. And many of us think, I'm getting into this thing in order to have a peaceful mind. I do this uh, beginning level series of classes, and the first thing I ask the students as they come in in Seattle is, what what are their expectations in meditation? And it's probably many of your expectations. I want to be peaceful. I want to be more calm. I'd like a little more joy or happiness in my life. I'd like to see things a little more clearly. On and on, the expectations are. And I say to them, fine, you may well experience that, but if you go into the room seeking only that quality, you'll miss the greater expanse and breadth of what's in that room, seeking only that which you're craving. In the analogy of the room and the flashlight, It is as if it is just this corner, this pretty area in here that I want to cultivate, which I call calmness or tranquility or peace. The rest of the room, I'm not so interested in. I just want to make this a bigger and bigger space so that eventually this calmness and peace 
will permeate the entire fabric of the room itself. And so I come in seeking something. And so I only look for indications of my meditation, which seem to indicate that this is growing. Or whatever it is that we in our hearts desperately want out of this room. Many people want to be soothed. Many people want to feel some relief or respite from the kind of chaos that we move with through much of our life. And we enter this room and we don't feel that soothing quality. What we find are all of the nooks and crannies of this room, which are full of the very qualities of mind and body, which we never wanted to accentuate. The anger, the frustration, the hindrances of sleepiness and restlessness and sloth and torpor and anxiety and doubt, worry. And we come into this room wanting it to be a certain way, wanting the walls to be painted a certain color, wanting the decorations to be a certain joyful expression, only to find that it's anything but that. And we say that the meditation isn't working for us. Because the meditation, from my point of view, only means this. Not the anger. Certainly not the fear. And if that's being displayed, then somehow the meditation isn't working properly. But the meditation is the room. The meditation is the awareness of the room. There is no quality that's in you that isn't in all human beings. The murderer, the rapist, and the thief. And the saint. To think that you can enter your room and not feel the rage of the murderer or the passion and lust of the rapist or the gentleness of Mother Teresa is a misunderstanding of what we're involved in when we get involved in meditation. When I was young, we had a game. And the top of the game was a metal container with little holes, Swiss cheese-like holes. And the game was plugged into the wall. And the tweezers, what you were supposed to do is take a metal set of tweezers, which were attached by a wire to this whole game, reach down through these Swiss cheese-like holes and pick up a little metal log and bring it out without touching the tweezers or the log to the side of the medical metal container or the buzzer would go off and the light would flash. This is mindfulness at its most frustrating. So you reach down and you pick up a log and it goes off 
or you pick out two or three logs before it goes off, and then you compare your logs to the number of logs that the other person is picking out. <clears throat> and so my first experience, my first experiment into mindfulness was one of competition. I always lost. <clears throat> and so, of course, when I got involved with mindfulness, in my practice, it had a competitive edge to it. I can sit like any other log. I can do it as well as anyone else. And it became more of the same strategy of life from which I had come than any sense of newness of entering this room and for its own sake. So if it's not from the old strategies that we come into this room, if those don't work for us, and many of us have to try effort, full of effort, full of striving, to try to make it work through those old strategies until those strategies dry out and don't work for us, and we see, and we get frustrated, and we drop our arms before we give up that kind of achievement mentality. But when we do do that finally, then we're left sort of feeling like, what now? I mean, many of us think, shining a flashlight, what does that do? I mean, if I can't first show it to somebody else and show people what I'm doing, look at, look at the light on my breath. <laughs> what good is it? Because we still weigh ourselves in relationship to how other people will perceive what we're doing. We, we want to display our meditation. We want to sort of put it on the altar, like this man. I mean, look at his meditation. <laughs> so we come into the room. Now, it's very interesting. Because when we come into the room, we begin to notice something right away, don't we? That our attention is anything but steady. It just whips around there and cannot light or sustain itself on anything for very long at all. It just moves and it dances and it flirts around and flits around and just... And then we have a very simple task in front of us to take the attention, to place it on the breath, sustain the attention on our breathing, and when it goes off, which it does countless times, bringing it back to the breath. But it's how we bring ourselves back determines whether we are going to employ the same strategies of our life to this new task, or whether we're going to develop something completely opposite to that. Because the way many of us bring our mind back is it's off, and it may be off for five or ten minutes, and we think, what's the matter with me? Can't I do anything right? That's the strategy of the old. That's the old way we were. And we're bringing it into our spiritual adventure, our spiritual journey. And we're trying to sustain our spiritual journey based upon the old strategies of our life. So we have to be very careful that we don't employ those old strategies. And the one strategy that is new for most of us 
sadly enough, is self-kindness. So we paint this room with self-kindness. And we say everything in this room has a perfect right to be there. Everything that we see, everything that we experience, has a complete and perfect right to be there. Don't be upset with any corner of this room, for it is all there in its perfection. Now there's something else that we notice right off as we find it very difficult to sustain our attention. And that is that we can't seem to control our thoughts. Our thoughts just fall like a waterfall, pell-mell, over. And if we were in control of our mental activity, we could simply say to ourselves, okay, stop thinking and be on the breath. And meditation would be a breeze. And if, in fact, the individual, the self, the I, were outside of the mind, contained the mind as an object, which is how many of us relate to our mind, somehow contained in a greater sense of meanness, then we could do that because it would be a product, like lifting our arm. We just put our attention here. But there's a very deep insight that comes in understanding that that is not how the mind behaves. Even when we first sit down and notice, our tendency is is to go, oh God, what's the matter with me? But if we turn that around and we look at it, we begin to understand that the sense of self or me or I is also in this room. And that you're wanting some quality of this room to be a certain way doesn't make it so. Because you're just another voice. We are just another voice in that room. Without any more influence than any of the other voices that you might hear. Or any of the other mental states that occur. And so we don't have the kind of volitional influence that we think we do although volition itself is a part of the mechanism of this room. And now the whole situation changes. Everything now is different. If I am also in this room, my manifestations also come from this room, then everything that I thought about how to be in this room, and how, what I need to do here, changes. Instead of an active, participating, effortful doing, rearranging, shuffling the corners, trying to improve upon this and not upon that, trying to accentuate this component and de-emphasize that one, trying to push my suffering down on that end and me stay up at this end, doesn't work doesn't work. Right? doesn't work. Because I'm part of the whole thing. The I is part of this whole thing. So what works? Remember, when we entered this room, we had one possession. 
And that is all we need. We have the light of our awareness. And so when these things arise within this room, the discouragement, the frustration, the impatience, the fear, the anxiety, I take the attention. The attention is placed upon that sleepiness, that restlessness, that doubting, that anxiety, that worry. And what then becomes the mechanism is not to move away from it, because who's moving away from anything? If I try, if my anger is there and I don't like my anger, isn't my movement away from my anger just another angry response to this thing called anger? If I have impatience, and I am not patient with my impatience, but I feel frustrated and irritable with it, my movement away from impatience, isn't that more impatience? If I find fear in my room, and I don't want it to be there, I don't want to look at it, and so I go to another section, isn't that journey across just the movement of fear? So in my movement in this room, all I do, any movement at all, all I do is accentuate the very product that I'm looking at. The very negative, unpleasant quality is actually reinvested with more conditioning through my movement away or my jarring or my wanting to look elsewhere. Because remember, the I is part of this room. Now what do I do? What do I do when every movement has been taken away from me? What do I do when all my old strategies have been completely eliminated? When my achievement and my effort are no longer, no longer have any relevance to my spiritual growth. I can see that. I can see that achieving or trying or attempting or effort or pull or is just, it's not accessing this room at all. It's trying to carve out a special environment from this room. Trying to create a, a special room within the room. I can't do anything. In Dante's Inferno, over the entrance of hell says something to the effect that all you, all ye who enter here give up any hope of ever leaving. But therein is also the exit. Because as long as I'm moving and rearranging and changing and shuffling and attempting to create another space or another room or get out of this one, I'm in hell. But the moment I stop, the moment I put down my effort, the moment I just shine the light of my attention, I move into a sphere of not doing. And that's heaven. 
and I'm out of hell. Now I can do things like metta, and metta has a very beautiful instillment of qualities of acceptance, loving kindness. But in my metta, I am still in these four walls. Metta has a very wonderful balancing quality to it. It begins to balance out some of the tendencies that we have towards self-hate. It's a marvelous, skillful means and tool to use to balance out some of those things. But it's not the end of the practice. To bring the metta in, in its fundamental quality, is to be able to offer that self-acceptance to what I see, not just cultivate loving-kindness. And so when I look at something, I look with a sense of acceptance of it just being what it is. We call it non-judgmental awareness. Not trying to distort it through my judgment, which is another movement away from it, not trying to do anything to it, but just accepting, allowing, allowing, just to see what is. Think for a moment what that means. When you are with somebody else who is in pain and you just open your attention to that other person, for that other person, you are giving them the greatest gift that you can give someone else not trying to fluff their pillow or do something for them or tell them what to do or make their decisions for them, but your offer of attention, of awareness, is the offer, is the gift of understanding to someone else. And the gift of understanding is the gift of love. And so when we shine our light inwardly, without judgment, without criticism, just being able to hold some of the worst parts of this room, and believe me, I know some of the terror. I am offering myself self-love because I'm not trying to distort or change. I'm not trying to rid or get influence or make any changes whatsoever. I'm just holding the lamp of my attention and offering whatever it is that's out there, my anger, my frustration, my fear, my impatience, my greed, my hatred, I'm offering that understanding. That in itself is often counter to why it was there. Often we have been gener generated with a sign, the kind of self-dislike because no one ever offered us that kind of understanding. And now for us to come back years later and to offer that same conditioning, the thing that it always craved, there is genuine healing that goes on in that simple, simple moment. Just to be able to offer ourselves attention. Many of us have craved that from the start. Most of us have never been fulfilled in the amount of attention we needed. And here is the opportunity in this very short week to new, move beyond some of that reactivity, some of those qualities of mind that have never been understood but have been acted out 
and to bring some understanding to bear upon them. And that understanding is the transforming quality of this practice. To understand what is in this room, to see it, to experience it, without judgment, just to see it, to let it tell us its experiential story, not the story of content, not the story of thought, but the story of its experience, of what it feels like in the mind and body. That is where the healing comes from. That is what we do when we sit on this cushion hour after hour. And when you choose to move off into your thinking and say to hell with this, I'm tired of this, you're choosing in that moment to step out of the room. No blame. But once you have seen the link between your suffering and the contents of this room, there's only one thing you can do. And that is come back into it. So leave the retreat, roll up the mat, head out. But at some point, you've got to come back in. Because you know the link. You know what suffering is ca- the causes of suffering. You know that it's not, I can't blame anymore. I can't put it, I can't pin the blame on the donkey. I can't do that. It's like a billiard table. All the balls just keep knocking into each other. There's no way out of this thing. I can't just get out of it because I'm in it. I'm part of it. I can't flee it. I can't get in my car and expect that the vacation I'm going to will somehow alleviate the tension and anxiety I feel. There's nothing I can do. And that is a salvation because you need do nothing. It's a hard nothing. (laughs) (laughs) It's a difficult nothing. It's a very difficult nothing. And my heart goes out to each one of you or the degree of courage that you all show. But we've got to do it. Here we are, and we've got to do it. And it is with that understanding that we just go in and we look around and we see what is here. And everything that we see, if we offer genuine acceptance, genuine non-judgment, it becomes the lion is changed into a house cat. Nothing is instilled with power except the fear that we have of it. And as we begin very slowly, very patiently, in our own time, moving throughout the corners of this entire room, the walls come down. And there is infinite freedom, infinite space, infinite contentment. Can we sit for a minute or two?
just this, just what's in front of our eyes. Nothing special. The grief, the anger, just this. <laughs> 